You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'i. Inshallah, we're going to be continuing with our series on the seerah, the prophetic biography, the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Inshallah, today's session, the last two sessions have been uh, dedicated, have been committed to an introduction to the seerah. And the primary uh, focus of those sessions was why study the seerah and subsequently what are the benefits of studying the life of the Prophet ﷺ in intricate detail. Today's session, again, will not be what's typically expected within a seerah lecture, um, just simply because we have to have the complete picture. If we are to really understand, if we are to study the seerah, if we're to understand and extract practical benefits and lessons from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, then one very important detail is understanding the circumstances at his time, understanding the situation that existed at that time. Because unless and until you don't understand the circumstances, the situations that were present at that time, then you don't have a full appreciation for who the Prophet ﷺ was, what he was able to accomplish, and the lasting legacy that he left behind. Um, you know, the, there's a famous couplet, in, I believe in Persian, I don't know it in actual Persian off the top of my head, but it roughly translates to the fact that you can only appreciate the beauty of roses when it's present amongst thorns. That the, the rose truly shows its beauty when it sits amongst thorns. And so the life of the Prophet ﷺ is such a, such a miracle in and of itself. His life, the way he lived his life, and the change that he was able to cause and enact. Uh, and that can only truly be understood and appreciated once you fully comprehend the circumstances, the situations that were present at the time of his life. So today's session will solely be dedicated to understanding Arabia, pre-Islamic Arabia. What was that situation? So we'll start off with a very basic detail, and this is from the tradition, again, of scholarship, that this is the way that traditional scholarship, classical scholarship, goes about in discussing these topics. That first of all, we know that that land, those people, that even, even to a certain extent, that time, that culture, is referred to as Arab. All right, that is the word for the people, that is the word for the place, and that is the word of the, the name of the culture. So what does Arab itself mean? So there's a lot of different opinions when you look within the lexicon, but something very interesting, and this also is part of the reason why the Prophet ﷺ was sent amongst these people. Understanding who these people were, what their situation was, and what they were capable of both good and bad, also answers the question, the philosophical question, why was Muhammad ﷺ sent amongst these people? Why was the Qur'an revealed in this language? Why was the Qur'an revealed amongst these people? So the word Arab itself, when you get down to the etymology of the word and the root of the word, again, there's a difference of opinion, there's a variety of opinions, but one of the most basic understandings of this word in its absolute root is that it refers to something that flows. Something that runs and something that flows. And based on that, there were different basic usages of this word within the Arabic language. To speak clearly, clarity in speech. The word Arab would refer to clarity in speech. And that's part of why the Arab called themselves Arab because they believed that they spoke clearly. And typically we know, what, did, what do the Arabs call non-Arabs? What do they call them? Ajam, they call them Ajam. And typically we understand that the meaning of the word Ajam is somebody who doesn't speak, somebody who's mute. Not, not correct. The meaning of the word Ajam is somebody sure they have the physical, it doesn't mean mute, like they don't have the physical ability to speak. It means somebody who definitely has a physical ability to speak, but when that person speaks, they babble. They talk nonsense, they talk gibberish. So Ajam literally means someone who babbles, somebody who speaks gibberish. And Arab means somebody who speaks clearly. So again, it's extracted from that because they believed that their speech was superior because it flowed and it ran like no, no other language or no other form of speech. 
So that's why their language was called that. And based on that, they would say, the Prophet ﷺ in a hadith, the word Arab itself is never used within the Qur'an. The word Arab itself is never used within the Qur'an in that form. Different forms of the word are used. Like the Arabi, Arabiyun. Qur'an is described as Arabiyun. Alright? So the word Arabi is used, which is an extraction of that word Arab. Which means something that is Arab. So the Quran is something that is Arab, meaning it's in the Arabic language. Alright? So, but the Prophet ﷺ, he uses this word in this meaning of flowing speech or to be, to be very clear in one's speech, to art, clearly articulate. Where the Prophet ﷺ says, anha When talking about the technicalities, the fiqh of marriage. We all know that in the fiqh of marriage, in nikah, that when a, an unmarried, a single woman, a woman who's never been married before, when she is getting married, then at that time, she requires the permission and representation of her wali, her male guardian. But the Prophet ﷺ says, thayyib, that a woman that has been married previously, now she is either a widow or a divorcee, the Prophet ﷺ says, يُعْرَبُ anha لِسَنُهَا That her own tongue will speak on her behalf. Meaning she is now allowed to represent herself in her own marriage ceremony and in the marriage proceedings. So the Prophet ﷺ is using this word يُعْرَبُ which comes from the word Arab to be very clear, to clearly articulate. Similarly, the Arabs would use the word Arab. Also, before I go forward, the Arabs had an expression, they would call somebody Arabaniyul Lisan. would mean somebody who speaks very clearly. Similarly, the second meaning that the word, the, in which the Arabs would use the word Arab is for happiness or for something to be emotionally fulfilling. This is used in the Quran in Surah Al-Waqi'ah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls the companions of paradise, the companions of Jannah, Allah refers to them as فَجَعَلْنَا أَبْكَارًا فَجَعَلْنَا أَبْكَارًا عُرُوبًا أَتْرَابًا عُرُوبًا so Allah refers to the companions of paradise, the companions of Jannah as Urub. Urub literally means somebody who's very loyal, somebody who's very loving, a passionate lover. Is called Urub, that's the plural, Arub. So that's the word for somebody who is very passionate in their love for someone. So again, very emotionally fulfilling that this person's emotions, they run and they flow like the river flows. So much so that even when a river would overflow, they would use the word Araba. Araba. Nahrun Arabatun. This river is overflowing. Bi'run Arabatun. A well that is overflowing. And so much so that, and this is very interesting, when something would become chaotic, when something would become problematic, when something would lose order, the word Arab would also be used for that. So the Arabs would say, Arabat mi'adatuhu. If somebody had an upset stomach, somebody had indigestion, they would say, Arabat mi'adatuhu. That he has indigestion. They would use the word Arab. Why? Because like when the river flows, when a stream runs, when a river flows, that water, while it's flowing and it's beautiful, but at the same time, you, it's not organized, is it? It's very chaotic. It's water. It flows in all different directions and it goes around the rocks in the middle of the stream and all types of stuff is going on there. So it's a very beautiful, controlled chaos, if you will. And that's the root meaning of the word Arab itself. And something now very interesting about that is that to a great extent describes these people. That's why these people were called the Arab. All of these qualities and characteristics described what these people were like. They were very clear in their speech, they were very articulate in their speech, in their language. In fact, it could even be argued that they were the most articulate people when it came to speech and language. Secondly, they were very passionate people. Something that I'll be talking about as long as time permits, uh, a little bit later in today's lesson, is talking about some of the good qualities that the Arabs had. Because too often when we talk about pre-Islamic Arabia, we talk about all the bad that was rampant. But we don't talk about the good that was prevalent. And something that's very interesting is that the Arabs had a great admiration for the qualities that we call hilm, hilm, forbearance, to be very, to, ha to have composure, to be very, um, to be very calm and peaceful, to be very serene. They had great admiration for these qualities. Part of the reason was these qualities were very rare amongst the Arabs, 
Because they were so passionate. They were such a passionate people that oftentimes they had trouble containing their own emotions. So again, that quality of passion was found amongst these people. And lastly, the chaos. That these were also people who, that were largely chaotic. There was not a, an established form of governance. There was not a, a, a systematic form of economics. There was not even a um, centralized form of religion for these people. So some of the primary factors that unite people, that organize people, whether it's government or it's economics, all right, financial interest, or it's religion. These are often the, the things that organize people. None of these things were organized amongst the Arabs. And that led to a lot of the chaos that we find there in pre-Islamic Arabia. And it was first the religion which brought about a system of governance, which established an economic system which all came after Islam, that the, this, these were the contributions of Islam to these people which contributed to the organization of these people and how these people became the exemplary civilization of their time. So that's a very interesting contrast which we'll discuss later on. Now to talk about the history of the Arabs, and this is something I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on. Um, there's a lot of detail in this. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah talks about this for maybe about 100 plus pages. In classical Arabic, he delves into the history of the Arabs. While there's a lot of very interesting things that we can find there, but like I said, part of the focus of these sessions will be to make the life of the Prophet ﷺ to basically ha to engage in a very practical, relevant study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And so obviously, delving into very, very deep details of the history of the Arabs, the genealogy of the Arabs, is something that might not be prudent to the common average Muslim, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. I would like, however, for you to just simply understand that genealogists, they divide the history of the Arabs, they divide the Arab race into two primary categories. So first of all, this is a sub-ethnic category, and then it's divided into two major categories. First are the ancient Arabs, or the perished Arabs, if you will. Those were the Arabs of Ad and Thamud. And those were the Arabs who largely perished, not a lot was remains of them, and not a lot is known of them outside of, again, the religious tradition that we have. All right, so that's the first category. The second category are the Arabs who remained. The Arabs who remained. And these are also known as the migrated Arabs. Some of them also, some genealogists also refer to them as the migrated Arabs. The reason why these are also called the migrated Arabs is because we find them primarily, or at the time of the Prophet it seems like the epicenter was the Arabian Peninsula, when in reality, these people that we see as Arabs at that time were not originally from that area. They had migrated to that area from other regions. So these were the Arabs who remained, the Arabs who remained, all right? That's the second category. Amongst the Arabs who remained, there were two categories as well. There were two subcategories. First were referred to as the pure Arabs. The pure Arabs. The pure Arabs were primarily what I will refer to in even classical times, that region was called the same name, Yemen. What we know as current day, modern day Yemen, and even in ancient times and classical times, that region of the world was still referred to as Yemen. All right, they were basically the Yemeni Arabs. That they had come to the Arabian Peninsula, Hijaz specifically, within the Arabian Peninsula. They had migrated there from the area of Yemen, and there's even a history to that. The Quran makes, refer, makes reference to Sayl al-Aram. All right, that there was a great flood in the area of Yemen, and due to that great flood, there's actually a little bit of detail there. Some Arabs had actually migrated to Hijaz even before the flood, even before the flood, due to economic hardship. There were basically two major tribes. One of them had taken control of the economy of the area. The second tribe, due to falling behind economically, they decided to pack their bags and move to a new place to try to find a better future for themselves and their children. And these were the first um, group of uh, immigrants, and then the second group followed after the flood. All right, so these were the pure Arabs. The second group, um, the second subcategory are the Arabized uh, Arab, all right, the Al Musta'arabun, the Arabized Arabs, the ones who became Arab. And the primary of these categories were Ismail alayhi salam himself. 
he falls amongst this category. That somebody who was not Arab ethnically, but be, was Arabized, became Arab. All right, and this constituted for a large population. And the world as we see it today, what we know as the Arab world today, the vast majority of it falls under this category of, of the Arabized Arabs because as Islam spread, the Arabic language and the Arab culture also spread along with it. And so much of what we know as the Arab world today is actually the, the, the Arabized world. All right. So this is the history of, the, of these people who are known as the Arabs, amongst whom the Prophet ﷺ was born. And so why is this of such prudent detail? Because the Prophet ﷺ comes from the progeny of the Arabized Arabs. The Prophet ﷺ comes from the progeny of the Arabized Arabs. And that's very important to remember. All right? Now, the geography. And again, the purpose of, not, of these lessons is not to teach you geography, but to give you an understanding of why the circumstances existed that did. Alright? The Arabian Peninsula is a very interesting place. If you just try to take a, take a quick image, if you can try to draw a quick map in your head, then you can t look, take a look at it clockwise, if you will, that the Arabian Peninsula is almost from the northeast all the way around to the mid to northwestern region is completely surrounded by water. It's, that's why it's called a peninsula. Alright, so it starts off at the northeast with the Persian Gulf, the Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman on the east, the Arabian Sea, which is an extension of the Indian Ocean on the south and the southeast, the Gulf of Aden continues on to the south, and then finally you have the Bab al-Mandab straight on the southwest, and the Red Sea up to the western regions of the Arabian Peninsula. So you literally have it completely surrounded by water. Alright, now the northern region of the Arabian Peninsula borders the classically what was known as Bilad al-Sham, the ancient regions of Syria, the ancient areas of Sham. Alright, and even till today the Syrian desert is what borders the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. And this is how it's structured geographically. Now, what, do we under, what can we learn based from that? What we can learn from that is there were two very interesting features to the geographical location of the Arabian Peninsula. Number one, it was very, if you will, internal. It was very internal. From, from a land perspective, it was very internal. So you only had one entrance to the land. Land-wise, you only had one entrance into the Arabian Peninsula, and that was through the Syrian desert, which, as, you're, as you can probably understand, was not exactly a walk in the park. You would literally have to travel through, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of miles, uh, 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 excuse me, hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles, of desert region, severe desert. All right, so due to that, it was no walk in the park. So it had a very internal setting which left it very isolated from many outside influences in terms of language, in terms of culture, and even religion, and many different factors which meant that it was a very insulated experience. The experience of being from the Arabian Peninsula, from being from Hijaz, was a very insulated experience. You were cushioned, you were insulated from many external factors and influences. So that meant it was a, it was a hotbed of deep cultural tradition. All right, and it was a treasure of linguistic nuances, literary nuances. So it had a very deep culture, a very deep language, and that was the experience there. The second thing, the second part of it was that it was also at the same time a very external region. It was a very exposed region of the world. Now, what do I mean by it being very exposed? That it was very exposed in terms of sea and ocean. So it served as a primary port to many key trade routes and tra uh, traveling routes to very strategic parts of the world. What that basically again means is that at the same time, it became an epicenter of trade and business. It became an epicenter of trade and business, that it was a very key strategic location in terms of trade and business. So you had these very two interesting dynamics to this, to the Arabian Peninsula, to Hijaz, where it had a very deep culture, a very deep language, was not influenced um, uh, by, by outside, by foreign influences, and there was, no, there was not a lot of government interest either. And in fact, implanting a government or running your own government from externally would be a very difficult endeavor. 
would be nearly impossible because you'd be completely cut off from this arm of your government that extended within this region. And that's why you did not have a lot of foreign invasions. All right? But at the same time, in terms of trade and business, it was a very key strategic region, which gave these people, again, a very strategic positioning. All right? These people were in a very, very um, interesting place in terms of business and trade and, and, um, and finance and economics. Now, the political situation. What, was the, what were the political circumstances revolving around this area of the world, this region? At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, again, there's a lot of history here, but we're going to focus on at the time of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, or even you can call it at the advent of Islam, at the revelation of the Qur'an, prophethood, the initiation of prophethood. What were the political circumstances that existed around this region? So you have a few regions, a few parts of the world that bordered the Arabian Peninsula, Hijaz. First of all, is, uh, the primary amongst them is, uh, is of course Yemen. Now Yemen very interestingly had been a battling ground, had been a war zone between the Jews and the Christians for a very long time. Yemen was one of those very few places amongst the ancient Arab world where Judaism had taken root. Judaism had found a, had found a home within Yemen. And for a very long time, for hundreds of years, Judaism and Christianity had been at war within Yemen. Judaism itself was rooted within Yemen and you had the nearby neighboring region of Abyssinia, Ethiopia, Eastern Africa, which was predominantly Christian, which had a Christian empire. All right? And these two religions had been at war within Yemen for a very long time and they had fought over the leadership, the rulership, the kingship of Yemen for a very, very long time. And we know that the, the Christian kingdom, in fact, in Abyssinia, had played a foreign influence. They had backed the Christians within Yemen for a very long time in terms of that war. Close to the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Abyssinians had literally come in and taken over. They had just come in and straight up taken over the area of Yemen. And from there you have the incident of the elephants. Alright, the invasion of the elephants and Abraha, you have that entire situation which we'll talk about in coming sessions inshallah. So you have that uh, dynamic going on there. However, closer to the time of prophethood, so during the early years of the Prophet ﷺ, somewhere during that time, there was an uprising, there was an uprising, there was a Persian influence that came into Yemen, and that backed some of the Jews and some of the local Arab tribes of Yemen, the polytheists, the idolatrous tribes of Yemen, the mushrikun of Yemen, they backed them from the Persian Empire, and they were able to overthrow the Christian Abyssinian kingdom, the rulership that was present in Yemen, and because of that, the Persian rule basically came into power. And the locals, the local tribes were the ones that were put into power, but it was attributed back to the Persian Empire. So for all intensive purposes, it was considered as an extension of the Persian Empire. However, the, one of the, the last of the Persian rulers, Badhan, he himself accepted Islam um, during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, and Yemen basically entered into Islam. And the Prophet ﷺ himself, he sent Ali bin Abi Talib and uh, Mu'adh bin Jabal to the area of Yemen to go there and to teach and to spread Islam amongst the people of Yemen. And so while Yemen had a very interesting history, during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, during the prophethood, during his lifetime, Yemen actually entered into Islam. So this was the primary region. The second region which bordered um, or was near enough to be an influence on ancient Arabia was Hira. Was the, uh, was the ancient classical region of Hira. Now Hira is what we know as current day, modern day Iraq basically, parts of Iraq. All right, the southern parts of Iraq was what was classically referred to as Hira. Now, in that area, again, there was always primarily a Persian influence. And that Persian influence remained there throughout the life of the Prophet ﷺ, only after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, during the Khilafah of Umar ibn Khattab anhu, were the locals. And what I refer to by the locals is the local Arab tribes. So for a very long time, there was a Persian influence only into the Khilaf of Umar al-Khattab where the local Arab tribes able to take over power and regain their region for themselves. But literally they were in power for not even an entire year until Khalid ibn al-Walid at the helm of a Muslim army came in and overtook that region and that region 
um, came under the rule of Islam as well. Another neighboring region for the Muslim, uh, for excuse me, for the ancient Arabs at that time, the Arabian Peninsula, um, at that time from the north was of course what we refer to as Syria, but it's the classical ancient region of Bilad al-Sham. Syria primarily was a Christian influenced region. Down from Rome, there was a very heavily Christian influence within Syria, and that also affected the northern regions of even the Arabian Peninsula, which were also primarily Christian at that time. And of course, this Christian influence within that northern region of Syria lasted until the Khilafah of Umar al-Khattab until that region also came into Islam. Now, these are the political influences. Now I know that I keep making a lot of reference to the religion of the area. That's only for the reason that we're, we're talking about a time where there was a synchronization between religion and gov governance and rulership. That these kings were not just kings of their, they were not just ethnic kings, they were not just kings of a region, but they were Christian or Jewish or, um, you know, uh, or Majusi kings. Zoroastrian kings of their time. So there was a heavily religious influence in a lot of the government of that time in that region. Now when talking about the governance within the Arabian Peninsula itself, Pan-Arabia, the, uh, the, the, the Arabian Peninsula itself, then at that time it's very important to understand there was no centralized form of government. There were certain influences that were leaking into the Arabian Peninsula from the north, from the west, from the south, um, but primarily, this region, entire region, was ruled by tribal law. The tribes were the, were the law of the land. And what that meant, and again, these tribes were not centralized by any means. There were certain inner tribal communications, but even inner tribal relations were strained because of all the inner tribal warfare that would exist. They were constantly at war with each other. Personal conflicts would often become tribal conflicts which would contribute to a lack of governance within the region in the area. And so tribal law was the law of the land. Now tribal law was, while it was different than kingship, but it had certain similarities because the, the leaders of the tribe, the tribal leaders, the chieftains, were many times dictatorial type leaders. Their, their, their rulings would be accepted, would be enforced as a king's rulings, as a monarch's rulings, as a dictator's rulings. They could not be questioned, they were not questioned. And they were accepted regardless of anything else. And oftentimes this type of tribal leadership would pass down through the family like, occur, like it occurs in monarchy. So it, was, it had certain similarities that it bore to kingship or monarchy, but nevertheless it was tribalism, and this was the law of the land, and this is how things existed at that time in that situation. And because of this type of a corrupt form of governance, one thing that I think we'll, we'll talk about more in terms of the um, culture of the land, or the, the culture of that time and that place and that region. But nevertheless, I'll go ahead and make mention of here, because still legal enforcement and preservations of people's rights are still related back to the politics of the region oftentimes. Because the political influences can many times dictate the, to the, the type of enforcement or preservation you have of civil liberty, civil rights, and those types of things, as we know very well here today. So similarly, because there was tribal law in the region, there was not a great preservation of people's rights. If you were wealthy, rich, influential, related to the tribal leaders, so if you had it in with the tribal leaders, if you had some type of a connection, or you had something to offer to the tribal leaders, then definitely you'd be alright, you'd be okay. But if you belong to any type of a demographic, any type of a class of society that was out of favor or was irrelevant or not of concern to the tribal leaders of that time, then again, you would greatly suffer. You did not enjoy a lot of rights or even liberties at that time. And that was the, the way society was structured. Similarly, to talk specifically about the, the culture in terms of the rights that people enjoyed in that, at that time in that area, at the same time, there's, some, there's a very interesting dynamic. While we can say that Arabi, the Arabian Peninsula, the area where the Prophet was born and raised, that area was chaotic. It had no governance, it had no king, it had no rulers, it had no government. 
But there was another interesting dynamic. The Arabs who lived in regions that bordered the, the great kingdoms of those times, like I talked about Syria and Yemen and these different areas, they were oftentimes seen as inferior to the citizens of those kingdoms that they bordered. So while the kingdoms had an arm that extended within those regions and they were the primary governance within that region, the, the, the inhabitants of those regions were seen as inferior. They did not enjoy the same rights as the actual citizens. So the people that bordered the Syrian region, the great Syrian kingdom, uh, uh, Christian kingdom, right? Those Arabs, while they lived under that rule, they were seen as inferior. They were second class, third class citizens. They did not enjoy the rights that those actual Christians would enjoy. And the same thing goes for the Arabs that lived bordering other regions as well. But when you came into more of the heart of the Arabian Peninsula, the, the region of Al-Hijaz, where the Prophet ﷺ was born and raised, that area could be seen as chaotic, could be seen as, you know, uh, barbaric. They had no form of government. But at the same time, they were the envy of the other Arabs. They were the envy of the other Arabs. Why? Because they enjoyed complete autonomy. They lived on their own. They had no foreign influences. Nobody treated them as second or third class citizens. They enjoyed a lot of dignity and a lot of respect. So while it was a bit chaotic and things could get kind of dicey there sometimes when tribes would go at war with each other or when, you know, if, you're, if your cousin or your neighbor or your friend, you know, got into a fight with the, tribe, the tribal leader's son, then he probably would die, all right? While there were incidents and situations of that nature, at the same time, this much had to be said that there was a great honor of, of being from amongst these people, that you enjoyed complete freedom. You did not live under a foreign rule which designated you as a second, third, or fourth class citizen. And that was something very interesting that existed within Hijaz. And the rulers of Hijaz, this is another thing that was very interesting, which you can see, again, could be designated as a contributing factor to why the Qur'an was revealed amongst these people, why the Prophet ﷺ was born amongst these people, was because the people of Hijaz had a different culture as well. They held their rulers in a great esteem. They didn't just see them as cultural, tribal, political, economic leaders, but they also saw them as religious leaders. They did not separate these concepts from each other. They saw them as religious leaders, and that's why the leader of the tribe of Quraysh, for instance, Banu Kinana, all right, the leader of the tribe himself, who would be the one making rulings, whose decision would be final in terms of where the trade caravan should go, and who would basically dictate the law of the land, he was also seen as a servant, as a caretaker, as a custodian of the sacred house of Al-Kaaba. As, the, uh, as a custodian and the janitor of the haram. He was seen as such. And he would find it, and this was something that tribes actually fought over. Again, I don't want to get into this detailed uh, history, but within the greater, you know, um, the greater tribe that the Prophet ﷺ comes from, there was actually a war in between different groups, different families, if you will, within the greater tribe that the Prophet ﷺ came from. And they fought over who would get to take care of the Kaaba and who would get to serve water to the Hujjaj, to the people that would visit the sacred house. So you could see while that same tribal leader that would sit there and give decisions and uh, make rulings for the people and would dictate rulings to the people, he was the same tribal leader that you would see out there walking around serving water, giving water to the people who were coming from far away to visit the sacred house. So there was a very interesting dynamic in this regard and from there you can see a lot of the cultural roots, if you will, of the Islamic mode of conduct and behavior. You can see some of those cultural roots, cultural seeds, if not even roots, you can see the seeds of it there within pre-Islamic Arabia. Now to talk about the social life of the Arabs. What was the social life of the Arabs like? Arabian society was a very interesting mix of, of different social constructs that coexisted at one time. I'll talk about the negatives and then I'll talk about the positives. 
Some of the negatives that existed at that time was again, you had a lack of you know, fair equal treatment of all segments of society. Slavery was prevalent at that time. And not just any type of slavery, but slavery that treated their slaves in lesser, um, that treated their slaves lesser than their animals. A camel, a horse, would enjoy better treatment than a slave would. All right? So there was unequal treatment of people. The dynamic of women within their uh, pre-Islamic Arabian society was something that was very interesting. Again, everything was a mixed bag. You had two very, very different experiences of women within pre-Islamic Arabian society. You had one on one side, women in certain social circles would be treated, again, unfortunately, very unfortunately, they would be treated subhuman, less than human. They were literally a commodity that would be passed on from man to man, from family to family. All right, I'm not even going to delve in and talk about the moral constructs of that society. That'll be a different topic. So oftentimes when we talk about women, we also even talk about the sexual exploitation of women that existed at that time. I'm going to talk about that separately because I feel that that is a separate dynamic altogether of that society, that how they even approached modesty and morals and ethics within their society. But I'm simply talking about how women were treated. Just generally. So there was, with, there was a segment of society, there were certain social circles where they were mistreated horribly. But there was also a segment of society, the more elite, the more elite within society, like within the families of the tribal leaders, women held great esteem. Women held great esteem. That the women within these more elite families of Arabian society, they not only owned land, they owned great wealth and great money. Khadija al-Kubra radiallahu anha, the first wife of the Prophet is a perfect example of that, a great businesswoman, an extremely wealthy woman. But they even played a critical role many times within the politics of the region. Their opinions were very crucial and critical to a lot of policies that would be enacted, to major decisions that would be made at that time. Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan, the daughter of Utbah, is a great example of this. That she dictated a lot of the she she you could single hand you could you could designate her as one of the key contributors to the battle of Uhud. She was she was one of the key instigators of the entire battle of Uhud. All right, she was the primary opposition to Abu Sufyan, even at the time of Fatu Makkah, until she later accepted Islam. So women had a very interesting position. It almost depended on where this woman existed within Arabian society. So you had two opposite extremes at that time. So slaves, enjoy, uh, slaves suffered through a very horrible treatment. Women either enjoyed a great social status, and it's safe to say that they enjoyed much more freedom than women did in other parts of the world. But at the same time, similarly, unfortunately, they also suffered through some very horrible treatment at that time. So this, these were a few um, elements of the Arabian society of that time. As I talked about, um, leadership would be passed on within family. And money, at the same time while money dictated to how well you would be treated, the money itself would be passed on through family as well. So it was definitely one of those dynamics that we still see today in third world countries, in third world society and parts of the world, where a person has a very little chance of even trying to better their situation. If you're born into a bad situation, there's a very little chance of you even trying to better your situation. Because so many social obstructs exist that don't allow you. So many obstacles exist that they don't allow you to even move past or try to attain a situation better than your current one. Now to talk about the moral, ethical, you know, um, culture that existed at that time. So we're literally talking about the culture of the Arabs. So in terms of modesty, in terms of the moral ethical culture that existed, as I've talked about, if you committed wrong to someone who was of higher social status than you, you would probably kill whether your crime warranted that or not. And if you committed wrong to somebody of a lesser social status than you, then you were probably going to get away with it. That's just 
how it worked at that time. At, similarly, in terms of modesty, and, and this is not just simply a discussion of modesty, but even the, the situation of family. Because this, this would affect the, the family circumstances that existed at that time. So what was the family situation? Again, you had opposite extremes. Within the more elite of society, family held great esteem. Family was integral to the Arab experience, pre-Islamically. Alright? And marriage was something that was treated as something very sacred. A man would propose to a woman, and they would be married, and he would give a marriage gift. And he would take care of her, and he would treat her with a great amount of respect. He would respect her as his wife, as his partner in life, as the mother of his children. But there was also a segment of society, unfortunately, where it was a complete opposite. There's a hadith in the Sunan of Abu Dawood where Aisha radiallahu anha narrates from the Prophet that four kinds of marriage existed in pre-Islamic Arabia. The first was similar to present day marriage, meaning marriage within Islam. It was very similar to that. It was comparable to that. The second was, which I just described, the second was that a man, that, that sometimes a wife that basically to summarize it, and to, because we are in a masjid, and I like to try to keep it as clean as possible, that the, there was not a lot of... I'm trying to think of the correct word, it's right there in my head and it's escaping me. But basically, people did not treat marriage very sacredly. People would cheat on their spouses. There was a lack of... Somebody can think of the word, let me know. Fidelity. Infidelity was rampant within Arab society. So there was a segment of society where infidelity was a very common trend. And infidelity was almost expected. It was assumed. And spouses would many times know of each other's infidelity and have no problem with it. So unfortunately that situation existed as well. The, sec the third type of marriage that Aisha radiallahu anha narrates from the Prophet wasallam that existed before Islam was that you had rampant uh, fornication. Rampant fornication. That there was no marriage. In the second type, there was at least a marriage, even though it was a sham of a marriage, but then infidelity was present. In the third kind, there was just rampant fornication. And a woman would almost fornicate with a set group of men. And then whenever she would become pregnant, she would designate that child to be the child of one of those men. He would take that child as his own, and he would raise that child of his own. And so it was almost this very unfortunate type of communal fornication that was going on. The fourth type of marriage, which is not even a type of marriage, but that, that detail comes at the end of the hadith, was that there was a straight up what we know today as a form of prostitution. There was, there was rampant promiscuity to the extent of it being borderline pro, uh, uh, prostitution. And that existed at that time. Where houses would be marked, residences would be marked, where this is where you would go to engage in fornication, adultery, and this is where you could come to attain the services of a prostitute. And, that, and, and children that would be born of these women would live a life of disgrace because they would not be claimed by anyone. They would just rant, they would be literally labeled as children of a zina, waladu zina, awladu zina, and they would live a life of misery and they would live a life of shame. And so, and the, the Prophet ﷺ says that the, the latter three forms of marriage, if you will, the word marriage is being used because the word marriage within the Arabic language is nikah, which in its literal roots can literally mean to simply enjoy physical relations with a member of the opposite gender. Alright? So the Prophet ﷺ at the end of the hadith says these latter three forms of nikah were abolished by Islam, have been forbidden by Islam, do not exist or are not recognized after Islam and only the first form of it remains and has been polished and made pristine by Islam, has been revered by Islam and has been decreed as you know, a divine, uh, the divine institution of marriage through Islam. So this gives you a little bit of an idea of the situation, the circumstances of family and modesty and morals and ethics that existed pre-Islamically within Arabia. To
to continue on talking about the culture of the Arabs, and this is the last thing that I'll talk about here, is there was a very deep emotional attachment to family relations, which again is something that we know as an Islamic concept, Salat al-Rahim, keeping the bonds of kinship, or if anybody understands what that means. Basically keeping good with your family and your folks, right? Being good to your family and your relatives. This is an Islamic concept. This was something that was found amongst pre-Islamic Arabs. And again, the farther you went away from city life, the deeper you went into tribal life, nomad life, who were known, who are referred to even in the Quran as Al-A'rab, the more you found this dynamic, the greater you found this, this experience. That family and tribe and relatives and relationships were very sacred. And they were maintained and they were kept and they were treated as sacred. Now talking about the economic situation. I've referred briefly about the economic situation. One thing that needs to be understood about the economic situation within, the, within pre-Islamic Arabia is that trade and business was the primary form of making a living. There was some farming that existed within some of the more central areas, regions of Arabia, but nevertheless that was still a minority. That was still a rarity. The primary form of economics, the primary form of making a living, making a living the entire economic structure of the pre-Islamic Arabs depended upon trade and business. And trade and business with outside regions. They didn't have a lot of natural resources. They did not enjoy many natural resources. So they would primarily focus on trading and doing business with outside regions. Taking goods from one, part of one, one border over to the other border. And this is basically how they made a living. And this is their entire economic system was based upon this. And again, because of the tribal instability, because of the political instability, their economics would often suffer. So the economic situation within pre-Islamic Arabia was not stable at all. And it's kind of like a vicious circle. Their political instability would make their, make their economic situation very unstable. All right? And because of the economic situation being unstable, that would feed right back into political instability. So it was a very vicious circle. So basically these were people who would be involved in a lot of warfare. There was a lot of fighting constantly that was going on. And so poverty, hunger, these were very common trends found within pre-Islamic Arabia. And that's why, just like we see in the third world today, and in fact, we even see this uh, unfortunate trend growing here, but there literally was no middle-class society within pre-Islamic Arabia. You had the very, very elite, and then you had the predominantly poor, which also constituted the majority of the land and the area. Now talking a little bit about some of the key vices, but also we talked about a lot of the vices and a lot of the instability that existed at that time. What I'd like to focus on now is what were some of the ethics? What were some of the positive elements of pre-Islamic Arabian society and their culture? Hospitality was one of their key qualities. And that might not sound like a big deal, like, okay, when somebody comes to your house and you're nice to them, right? Again, because of the culture that we live in today, hospitality is very minimal. Hospitality was a, is, was a big part of the experience of pre-modern society. Because the second you traveled, you were instantly a guest. All right, Any type of travel, any type of you know, instability within your own personal life immediately led to you being a guest. So hospitality was a big part of any culture. All right, there were no hotels, there were no restaurants, there were no, you know, grocery stores. And a lot of these types of conveniences that we have set up into place today, these things didn't exist. So you were immediately dependent upon somebody's hospitality. All right, and somebody's goodwill towards humanity in general. And hospitality was definitely a strong suit of these people. And it was almost, some of the historians say something very interesting. They say hospitality was so much of a quality of theirs that it was almost to a fault. That in the spirit of hospitality, they would commit wrong to another person. They would commit aggressions towards people in the pursuit of hospitality. That they would oftentimes jeopardize the well-being of their own family in the spirit of hospitality. 
All right, and so this was how strong the sense of hospitality was within these people. And also, within the culture of hospitality, some very negative things, some certain vices existed within the culture of hospitality. Once again, because of rampant infidelity and promiscuity, that oftentimes they would offer up even their own spouses in terms of, in, in the spirit of hospitality. They would enlist the services of um, prostitutes in the spirit of hospitality. That wine, alcohol, drinking, unfortunately was very rampant, again, in the spirit of hospitality, all right? That's so much so that the, the Arabs, uh, the, the linguists, the etymologists, they note something very interesting, that karam, karam, which means to be noble, to be dignified. And a good noble host would be referred to as karim. And karam is also where the word for grapes comes from as well. A type of grapes also is extracted from that. While inab is bunches of grapes, all right? But karam is even makes reference to grapes themselves, all right? Because it was seen kind of hand in hand, and not just feeding of the grapes, so wine extracted from grapes would be served to one's guests as well. Another thing that was very, that, that was a great quality of the pre-Islamic Arabs was the sanctity of a person's word. When somebody gave you their word, that was it. They were people of their word. They held their word to be very, very sacred. Because again, in a place where there was no law, where there was no court, where there was no judge, where there was no legal system, a person's word was everything, was all that they had to offer. And especially because poverty being very rampant, sometimes when a person has nothing else to offer, when they can't pride themselves on anything else, they say, I got one thing left and that is my honor. And said so that honor was very sacred in terms of my word. I gave him my word. And again, if I gave somebody my word that I would give this to them or I would provide to them, I would kill, I would murder, I would steal in order to keep my word. So there was a very interesting contradiction. But nevertheless, at least that spirit of keeping the word was something that was present amongst them. Sense of honor and repudiation of injustice. So they had a great sense of honor. And they at least philosophically or conceptually Idealistically, they were opposed to injustice, even though injustice was rampant. But they were at least, they had this idea, they had this concept. And that's why we see that pre-Islamically, we see the Hilful Fudul. We see that, that, that treaty, that, that act being put into place, that treaty being enacted. That we will fight, we will strive, we will at least make, sit here and put our support behind preserving people's rights. And the Prophet ﷺ, that's why he, he was a part of the Hilful Fudul, and the Prophet ﷺ said that even after Islam, if this was brought to me again, I would agree to it, I would sign it, I would back it 100%, I would put my full backing behind it. Alright, so this was a concept that existed. As I mentioned before, forbearance, patience, almost mildness within a person's personality, composure, serenity, these were things that were greatly admired. Why? Because they were very hard to come by. These were very passionate people. Alright, that were very easy to get riled up. And so they respected these things. And simplicity was also a big part of their life. Simplicity. You had extravagance or lavishness that's, that some elite of society would engage in. But there was still a great simplicity to these people. A leader would literally sacrifice his own animal. And he would skin the animal himself. And he would cook the food himself. And he would serve food to his people himself. And he found dignity and honor in that. He found dignity and honor in that. A leader would sit amongst his people. Would walk amongst his people. When they would travel, the leader would literally sleep by the fire along with all the rest of the people. There were certain things that were very interesting about them and they believed in certain simplicities that made their culture, a very interesting culture, and gave certain very um, notable, um, there were certain notable ethics that were a part of that culture, which contributed definitely to the revelation of the Qur'an and the birth of the Prophet ﷺ amongst these people. Now, I'll end here today by talking about 
some of the, and then we'll talk about the religion of the Arabs in the next session, in the following week's session, inshallah, we'll talk about the religion of the Arabs, where their religion came from. There's a very interesting um, story and there's a very interesting history to even where their religion came from, where it originated from, where it came from, all the perversions that it went through, and how it ended up in the situation that we find it at during the lifetime of the, during the, at the time of the birth of the Prophet And from there, of course, we'll delve into the actual birth of the Prophet I'll end by talking a lot about some of the cultural traditions that were a part of Arab life. The pre-Islamic Arabs in the area of Hijaz were predominantly illiterate. So much so that certain books of history say that the all the literate people within Mecca were, were not even up to 20. There were not even 20 literate people who knew how to read and write fluently within the entire city of Mecca at the time of the birth of the Prophet So illiteracy was that rampant. All right, illiteracy was that rampant during, at the time of the birth of the Prophet within Mecca. In spite of this though, the Arabs still placed a great premium on knowledge itself. Knowledge itself. So knowledge was carried primarily through oral tradition. Now again, you could see this almost kind of like a circular discussion. Part of the reason why they were illiterate was because these were people of great memory and great oral tradition. But again, because of their great oral tradition and their reliance upon memory, they never developed a sense of urgency about learning how to read and write. They never felt any need to learn how to read and write. So again, it was kind of like a vicious circle that just kept feeding into itself. But nevertheless, this was the culture of that time. But they still placed a great premium on knowledge. When, when certain people amongst them would travel out to other parts of the world and would bring back information in terms of astrology, or economy, or trade and business, and agriculture and farming, when they, when they would, or history, or even information on different religions, when they would bring back this knowledge, they would build circles, they would form circles around these individuals to get that knowledge directly from them. At the same time, genealogy was an expertise of these Arabs. It was something they were very keen on. The history of lineages, where people came from. A child by the age of four could literally recite his own genealogy, his own family tree, going 20 generations back, by the age of four. And it was such an obsession amongst them, genealogy, they even preserved the genealogy of horses. They even would preserve the genealogy of horses and because they were not literate people, they would memorize them. They would memorize the genealogy of horses. So genealogy was an expertise that existed amongst them and it was a big science, it was a science. It was a knowledge that they prided themselves on. And of course we know about the, 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 the rhetoric, the eloquence, the oratory skills, the poetic skills of the Arabs and how they prided themselves on this. And this was a big part of their culture and their society. Wars would be started. Like when I say wars, like battles would begin through displays of poetry and eloquence. They wouldn't send warriors out to the middle to first fight it out and then the battle would begin. They would send poets out to the middle to recite poetry to each other, praising their own people and degrading the others. That poetry was not just it began wars, it would end wars. Tribes would one-up each other. They would have pride over each other based on how many poets came from their tribe. He's from our tribe. Oh, he's from my tribe. Oh, he's from their tribe. So tribes would pride each other based on their poets. All right? And so their entire culture was founded on this. The, the, tra the tradition of Hajj that existed pre-Islamically, while it was, it had certain, it bore certain similarities to the Muslim practice of Hajj, the Islamic institution of Hajj, but nevertheless it was very different at the same time. And part of the difference was Hajj was a gathering when they would have poetry competitions. There was another occasion by the name of Ukaz, when all war, all battles, all differences would be put aside and all the greatest poets of the land would gather in a place outside of Mecca and there they would have poetry competitions. And the king of poetry for the year would be crowned at that time. The leader of poetry. Mr. Poet Man would be crowned at that time. And would be given his trophy until the following year at that time. So this was a big part of that culture and that tradition that existed at that time. And they prided themselves on this. Poetry was the law of the land. And 
This is a big reason for why the miracle that was of the primary miracle, of course, that was given to the Prophet was the Quran itself, and that's why the miracle was embedded within the guidance as a form of eloquence, because that was something that they definitely understood. And the Prophet himself was an extremely eloquent man. He was not literate, which is something we'll talk about later. He was not a poet, but nevertheless, the Prophet was an extremely eloquent man. And I forgot to mention this. We, we're going to talk next week about the religion of the Arabs, and we'll talk about the idols present within the Haram around the Kaaba, placed in the Kaaba, around the Kaaba. Something else, they held the Kaaba as a sacred place. And you know what they would do with poetry? Whatever poetry was crowned to be the best poetry of that time or that, that, that competition would have the distinction, would have the honor of being hung from the Kaaba or hung near the Kaaba. And they would be called the Al Mu'allaqat. The poetry of Imra'ul Qais, Zuhair ibn Abu Salma. They were hung there as the the, 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 the richest of poetry from the Arab tradition and they would be called the Al-Mu'allaqat, the hung poems and they would literally be hung near or around the Kaaba. And so the, these are some of the circumstances both cult, um, from all aspects, the geographical, the historical, the genealogical, the political, the economic and even the cultural circumstances that were present at that time in the Arabian Peninsula prior to the birth of the Prophet amongst these people. We're nearing the time of Salat al-Isha now, inshallah, so we're gonna go ahead and stop for this week. Next week, we will talk about the religion of the Arabs. And that's going to have some very, very interesting details because that is the key and the root of everything. And then the following week, we'll talk about the birth of the Prophet and how the Prophet was able to change the tide was able to counter all of these negative influences and was literally able to restore this society, these people to their original pristine of where they came from, Ibrahim salam, in that rich tradition and how he was able to reverse the complete circumstances of these people. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the understanding of everything that has been said and heard. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashadu la ilaha illa anta nasafiru wa natubu ilayk.